welcome back listeners. So last season, I want us to take a moment to remember an iconic episode of ours, Definition of Not Done. So this is a part in every series known to man when a character begins a show by recapping the high points of the, of like the last episode with a dramatic entrance, like saying previously on Loki, dun, dun, dun. but I'm not going to do that. So fair warning. Um, so we talked about the many variations of what definition of done really means in a scrum team, right? What it means in a less model, what it means in a nexus and the many ways work can claim to be quote unquote done, but In reality, it was waiting to be validated by the customer while sitting in an environment unacknowledged while the scrum team moved on to their next sprint goal. So we talked about that, but what we didn't talk about was definition of ready. And like, if I were to tell you that unlike definition of done, definition of ready is not prescribed in the scrum guide or in less or in the Nexus guide. So why is it brought up so many times in scrum? Why is it so important to understand what done looks like without inherently understanding what ready looks like. So what I will say, though, is that we get closer to readiness when we are able to make informed decisions, not influenced by bias or unverified assumptions. So listeners, last season, we talked about definition of not done. But this season, we bring you definition of not ready with co-host MC and our newest guest speakers, Oscar Rodriguez and James Schneider. This is Agile This Week. So Oscar, let me ask you this question then. So why do you think it's so important to understand definition of done without understanding what definition of ready is first? Why do you think Scrum took that out and their inherent belief is to have backlog refinement, to have a conversation around it, but why would they prescribe definition of done but not ready? So one of the things that comes to mind for me is that no one ever asks, are we ready? Everyone always asks, are we done? When will we be done? Are we done yet? And so that kind of being able to answer that question to our executives, to our team, to observers is the first thing that most of these methodologies think they need to deal with. Yeah. In traditional project delivery, ready becomes when you actually have funding. It's when it's approved. It's when the powers that be say go. It has nothing to do with do we know what the hell we're doing? And unfortunately, in a lot of traditional product shops, it seems as though success is often measured by checking boxes. Did we get started? Do we have our our, uh, charter? Did we have our vision statement? Not that anyone's looked to see if these are relevant or if it resonates or if there's a market for it. Um, But that's kind of in all of the work I've done with executives and teams and product delivery shops over the years. The question you always hear is, are we done? Not are we ready? Oh, man. And that's such a controversial topic, too, because why fast forward to work that is done if you didn't even plan to succeed to begin with? That's my thing. Okay, I'm going to quote Benjamin Franklin. You either plan to succeed or you plan to fail, buddy. Okay, so you, you define what success and failure is. But James, I'm going to ask you the same question. Why do you think that's the case? I don't think there's a whole lot that I could add to what Oscar said, except <laughs> that it's easier to see when something's done than to see when it's ready or to know when it's ready. Yeah, and it makes me think about... Um, I guess the way Steve Jobs puts it, like customers don't really know what they want until you show them. So we harp on work that is done that we can actually show versus speaking to it ideology. But at the same time, I I agree with you, Oscar. A lot of preparation goes into justifying your funding. 
of what you've been billed as a team to build. And this is kind of where I like I want to touch on product market fit for a brief, brief moment, only because you identify that through a market demand. You identify that through heavy, heavy user research. But why do you think it doesn't get acknowledged in the very beginning when we start building a product from its true origin? Well, so I think you've hit on it uh, with what you just said about there's this belief that people don't know what they want. Yeah. And so we ignore them. <laughs> we tell them what they want. Oh, you must want it yeah. faster, better, cheaper. You want what we want. I, and so many times I've been in development shops where we look at each other to say, what do we want? We're generally not the target market. Either we're more technologically invested yeah. or we're more tech friendly. Are our customers really that way? Or do they just want something that works? They don't care what the technology underpinnings are or what it looks like or if it's flashy. They just want it to work. But a lot mm-hmm. of times that's just left out. Yeah. I like that you bring up sometimes when we're in teams, we literally just look at each other like, are we building this right? Like, I truly don't know. Like, we need to validate what we're building. Why are we building the thing? Like, that's something that I brought up in a previous episode. Developers wake up in the morning and perhaps this product is like older than they are. Okay, let's just be realistic here. This product is older than they are and they were hired to provide a service. But it's never too late to recap to the vision of why this product even existed in the first place, a vision that one person had of an optimistic future of how this product could affect its customers. MC, you raised your hand very politely. What What's going through your head? <laughs> no, I was, I, you said exactly what I was going to say. I mean, sometimes they don't they don't know why they're building something, but I also think sometimes they just don't care, right? And yeah. there's a balance, right? I've worked with so many developers where they're just like, just tell me what we're building. I don't care why. <laughs> you know? That breaks and it's, my heart. <laughs> it does because like, you know, Working with with teams in in an agile role, you know, you try to, you know, bring up feelings and psychology and everybody matters and your input matters. And I would venture to guess, um, to use a negative term, I would venture to guess that there is a large number of quote unquote code monkeys out there where they're just like, I'm just here to to write some shit and get a check. So it's, you know, we talk about, and and you know how I feel about this tab. Um, Mm -hmm. We talk about team composition and and building an organization. You got to have a healthy mix Um, (laughs) because you're going to, someone's got to do the shitty work. So (laughs) (laughs) jeez, (laughs) at least you acknowledge it's there. (laughs) I'm glad that cat's out of the bag. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Like it, it is a balance. And I mean, obviously, we don't want to overwhelm the developer with expectations that we should be having of the product owner. And um, essentially, the guidance that we're hoping on that we're, we're building the thing that's been validated with a demand by a mass population of users. And that brings me to my next point. So James, I want to ask you specifically this. So what happens when we assume demand for a product or even a feature from a stakeholder or a sponsor without validating it from a mass population of users when it comes down to who's paying for the capital of the product? What has been your experience with that? All right. Before I answer that, I do want to touch back on vision since you brought it up. And I want to give yes. it from the from the product owner perspective because uh-huh. I want to challenge MC on something. Now, I know this is not always going to be the oh, case. but boy. So, so, <laughs> so one of the things that I've been trying to do as a product owner is express the the product vision, the product goal, the product strategy. I've been trying to do that at least twice a sprint before sprint planning and before the sprint demo. And the more that I do that, I think the dev team understands more what the goal is and what the vision is. They're more likely to get behind it. And at the same time, if we do it 
every single sprint, then we can refine the vision and say, well, this this changed because we know how fast information technology can change and we know how fast the market can change. So I think that could help. But what you described was also true. There's some people that just want to code. They don't really care why. They don't care. <laughs> Mm-mm. And they will let you know about it too. D- dude, like, just tell me what I got to do. Like, I'm just trying to be a team player. <laughs> I think I, I want to retract my previous statement. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. No. So... I do think there are people like that that do exist. But what I will say, and I think I came off a little harsh, I think of an overwhelming majority <laughs> will get behind the product to some degree care about it, right? I mean, there's always the, you, everyone's worked with a few developers that it's like, yo, it's 12 o'clock, everyone's taking lunch, what are you doing? I really just, I, I'm close to figuring this out, right? And they wind up working through lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Or staying late or working on the weekend, whatever, right? And they choose to do that. They should never be asked to do it. But those are the folks that they have bought into the vision. They understand what they're trying to build. They like legitimately care. I think there's a, a good sized subset of those people out there as well. So not all developers hate the product. <laughs> I like how you walked that back. <laughs> I know. He, he was very diplomatic about that. Bravo, sir. Bravo. <laughs> See, I'd, I'd even double down on it. I'd say that it's it's absolutely the case what you said earlier without before you retracted your statement, but that it's not that people are born that way. We make them that way because as James said, like James is doing the right thing, making sure people mm-hmm. understand what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. If we don't if we don't have that, just period, people mm-hmm. will start stop caring because they don't know why they're doing what they're doing and my leadership doesn't bother to tell me. Yeah. And that becomes really dangerous when you don't know why you're doing what you're doing in the team. Why are you accepting the work into the sprint? That that becomes really dangerous. And that's where we stop acknowledging if work is ready. Like the, the definition of definition of ready and scrum before, like, is there enough information in the work that's about to be committed to for your sprint goal? And when we ignore that and, and disregard that, oh man, that's when conversations start to happen at the end of that sprint. Um, but MC, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say that leads us right back to if you, if, how can you be ready if you don't know what you're doing? Right. Yeah. Like, like, so, you know, Oscar and James and Tabby, all of you know that I played football my entire life. How am I ready to go out and literally push another human being around if I don't have an idea of what's the game plan? Right. What is our vision for the single game? How can I push another human being down the field? Can't. It's not possible. So yeah. um, I, I love how the vision, you know, ties right back into in, into definition of ready because it's it's absolutely the most important part. And I'm glad you brought sports into this because I I legitimately don't know how football actually happens. Like I just su- like summarize it into all sports ball. I just think people <laughs> go into the field and just start hammering each other. So I'm glad you laid that out for BMC. <laughs> so do you just ask the question, MC? How do you football? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I needed a moment to acknowledge that. Coming back, coming back, listeners. So <laughs> readiness. So bringing it back to to you, James, on the question of how do we handle situations when obviously the product or the feature isn't ready to be committed to because it's being paid for by a stakeholder or a sponsor and it has not been vetted. The most likely scenario, I think, is you really hurt adoption. Mm-hmm. It, it, whether it's one feature that you, you get out there immediately because somebody said so, the user says, hey, this wasn't ready, this wasn't what I asked for, they, they're going to be, they're going to question the next feature rolled out if it's going to be good or not. Yeah. And thus starts the cycle. Mm-hmm. I call it the cycle of suffering, but that's me being dramatic. Um, when one feature gets accepted by the team, 
no questions asked, that begins a pattern, begins a whole new relationship with the stakeholders. So that's where we try to manage expectations because a feature may be vetted or it may even be biased. A feature may be biased based on the assumption that it's going to bring the most value to their users, but it wasn't actually validated by one person. Knowing that, I kind of want to touch on a team's ability to identify waste versus value. So we talk about value so often. I think value in itself has become a buzzword in the Agile space, as much as Agile has. So (laughs) we talk about value, but how is our ability to identify value any different our ability to identify waste? This one I think is near and dear to me because you all know how I am. I'm a value first kind of guy and I could give a shit if it's Agile, Scrum, Kanban. (laughs) I don't care if it's Waterfall. If you Waterfall well and you're delivering value, more power to you. Um, You did create the the verb last season, Waterfall it. So yeah. (laughs) But, um, But I think, you know, I think from a team perspective primarily... The developers and and creators, let's call it that, right? I've used that before. Developers, designers, data scientists, whatever. Man, they do a damn good job at identifying waste. And and it's it's bizarre, right? And it it almost spits in the face of what I said before about most of them being quote unquote code monkeys and not caring. They they can like they can spot it from a mile away. This is dumb. This is a stupid feature. Why are we building this? Those are the best parts. This is and you and you can tell and you can tell, (laughs) right? But then when you're when you're building the cool shit, that's when they lean in and the sleeves are rolled up and and they're there. So you know, I, I think it's bizarre, like. The product owners that I've worked with over the years, a vast majority of them struggle to identify and, and, and kind of sift through the BS of value versus waste. Oddly enough, I, I think creators can can see it a little bit better. Maybe Isn't that a sign of really good team health when they become so invested and they are just transparent about why are we working on this? This is dumb. Like, let's, let's get back to the drawing board and pivot. No, I agree that it definitely comes back to if we if our ability to not be able to identify waste it goes hand in hand with not being able to identify value because you got to know the difference. But Oscar, what were you going to say? I'd say there's, from my perspective, there is a very distinct difference between being able to identify and being able to, or being able to communicate upwards that there's waste. Mm. Because I would agree with MC that I think the creators are really good at sniffing the BS. They know what they shouldn't be doing, what they should be doing. But are they empowered to say that? If they're not, they're just going to, they're going to revert into being code monkeys. They're going to get their paycheck. I'll move on to the next company when this one goes under, um, or I get sick of this one. But uh, (laughs) it it, it goes back to like empowerment. It goes back to what James was talking about about understanding what what it is they're doing. But if there's no buy-in, there's no empowerment, then why should I bother telling anybody that there's waste? Yeah, I'm like I'm sorry. I'm just gonna acknowledge how depressing that is for a developer. (laughs) Like you you don't say anything when you see waste because there's no point because no one's going to acknowledge it. Like even if you say something. That's so depressing. So listeners, if you're doing that, stop. Cool. Yeah, so I was going to say, let let me get up on my soapbox real quick. Because, (laughs) and this is what I tell, this is one of the, this is how I approach working, right? Clocking in on uh, for the nine to five. If I wake up and I, and I hope anybody who listens to this, hears this and, and this makes you think if I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to go to work today, not because I'm being lazy or I'd rather play video games or whatever. But if I like legit don't want to do this job because of the job, it's time to find a new fucking job. Like I, I grew up, I grew up watching family go to go to a job they hated every day. I ain't going to do that shit. It's not happening. Find a new job, <laughs> a new job and I'll get off All my right. soapbox. MC for the people. Vote for MC. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, I completely agree, MC. Our hours are too valuable to be wasted in a job that we don't feel passionate about. But also, it's probably a job that we have gone through and we have done our due diligence and it's time to be ready for another job. See what I did there? Um, so <laughs> something that I want to touch on, when when I experienced, like teams are completely open to going in a rut. Like it's just like humans go through a rut, teams go through a rut. It's just human nature, right? So when we lose our way, and the path of what we're trying to learn from what we're building. Sometimes the first experiment that we commit to doesn't end up being two sprints, it ends up being like six. So fast forward to sprint five, and you're kind of losing your direction of, are we completely positive that this is we're going to be able to measure what we're trying to learn from the first this first experiment so my thought process goes honestly this is going to sound pretty cheesy but i'm going to go back to the vision because six sprints if you do the math that's 12 weeks so that's a long time to not know why you're building the thing so let's go back to the product vision and my intent is to create or help the creation of a vision that makes sense to the team, not just words on a Word document that sounds good to stakeholders. Okay, I'm going to call this shit out. So words that illustrate a future that you hope to create with your product. That's what I believe a vision is supposed to illustrate, that any person could just read it and understand, A, why you're building this product, who's it for, and what kind of future are you creating from it? Why is it unique? Why is it competitive? All those good things. So I come back to that, and that actually happened to me today with a team that it's kind of a passion project of mine. There was a there was a moment of introspection that I shared with them and I didn't understand how this was going to impact the direction of what we're building with this video game. Yeah, we're play, we're building a video game. And I had to go back to the vision just to readdress my intent of why we pursued this in the first place. So to bring it back to the vision and what does the vision mean to you all when you create it for the first time? So James, you mentioned that you wholeheartedly speak to your product vision at least once a sprint, maybe twice a sprint. What does it mean to you when you share that with the team? How do they respond? In the very beginning, I don't think they they understood it very well. And mm-hmm. it's it's that just falls back on me. It means I didn't explain it well enough. But it's much like you described, Tabby. And if you can have some kind of emotional appeal in there, that that really helps. It's you, you have to remember that your your roadmap and your product strategy are what you do so you can reach that vision. Mm-hmm. When you explain that they're all all tied together, even though they're different. I think that really helps. Big time. And I'm glad you brought that up. Like I think in in the lean startup, Eric Reese kind of stacks it in a way. Um, most of the product pyramids that I've seen, it's the inverse. Like product is the biggest part of the pyramid. Then it's the strategy. Then it's the vision up top. I absolutely think it's the inverse. Despite what you build, your product vision should be a good bit of that pyramid. Like in fact, the most part of that pyramid. Then your strategy. Then your product. And knowing that. Because you give your yourself and your team the ability to pivot, pivot or persevere, which brings me to my next topic. So when it comes to understanding, build, measure, learn, what happens when we fail to know when to pivot or persevere, when we continue building the thing and we just never pivot? That's something I want to ask you, like ask you all in this call. Like when you've built a product for so long, isn't it kind of suspect you've built it for at least six months or a year and you haven't pivoted from your existing assumptions that we're validating? When what did we actually learn from a year of building a product and not being able to speak to it? But we've invested so much money into it. We can't look. Oh my God. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we can't go back. We spent so much damn money. My God. Like, give the money back. <laughs> Keep moving forward. Answer. Damn the anyway, torpedoes. That's the, the, the soap cost fallacy. Exactly. I mean, yeah. and, and MC knows I, this is my soapbox, is when I get on about this, oh, let's the hear soap it. cost yes. fallacy. Because that's it's constant. And it goes back to we always look to the person with the funding that tells us we were ready to go and that we know where we're going. One of the things James said, which I think was very enlightened, when we tell people what we're building, what our vision is, and they don't understand it, it's it's our fault, not theirs. If we think it's the person we're explaining it to's fault, that's where we get into the trouble of damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Nobody will ever look and see, well, what am I missing? What am I not explaining right? Am I explaining it right? And it just is not hitting home. I've seen so many projects where they're successfully completed. And you mm-hmm. know, MC, we worked in very similar large corporations, and I'm sure you've seen it a ton yourself. Because we completed all the project management checkboxes, the project was successful. The product is successful. Lies. We don't care we what the user it. says. Lies. And we got to have a nice big party, <laughs> and we had a potluck when we were done, and somebody a got a somebody got a bonus. Hey, man, I like food. Somebody got a bonus and a promotion. Oh my god! And then what happens? What happens six to eight months later, Oscar? There's a new project to undo, redo, or reinvent what we just celebrated. Oh my god! You're living in a fallacy. <laughs> it is like a scene from Inception. <laughs> Job secure. Oh man! I, I was gonna say I, I, there's a there's a very like jaded part of me that thinks like some people do this shit on purpose just to oh keep god. a job. Another depressing point. Get out, please. <laughs> Please, please. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like that, it comes to funding. Like we've paid so much for such a long period of time. We can't go back now. We we want a return on what we paid for. But I, but I think a lot of folks, they, they get this vision in mind. This is what I'm going to build. And as soon as they come to a realization of, oh, what I'm building might not be what I what I should build. Mm-hmm. And they either keep pushing, right? Some cost fallacy, or they just have this thing in their mind where they're like, well, I can't build something else because I said I was going to build this. Just go after the, like, no one cares. Go after the value. Who cares what the output is as long as you get the value? But the funding was approved for this other thing. We can't spend it over here where there's more value. <laughs> you know how much Sneak paperwork there is to get it moved? So I, I, this is a great story because it happened at a large company, which this is rarely the case. It's a replatforming. So as as we just discussed, we were replacing something that was already built because that's what we do in large corp- uh, corporations. But so this replatforming exercise started with we are going to rebuild component A. Now, I won't use names to protect the guilty. But when we started down that path, millions of dollars approved for this replatforming of component A. We're two months into it. So we spent money. We get a, a report back from Gartner oh crap, we're best in the industry. It's not great, but we're best in the industry with component A. Alrighty. And I was fully expecting of, you know, full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes. Let's rebuild it anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we did get a lot of that, but we, the team felt empowered and we actually pushed back. We're like, we're not, we're not building this. So we pivoted. We looked at what, what is the market telling us is the, the problem? Where are we seeing production incidents show up? Where are we seeing customer complaints show up? Where are we seeing errors in the processing? Let's go after that. Um, and sure enough, we pivoted. This went in, <laughs> is related to one of the projects that MC and I have been we're on at different times in our lives. But as a very successful replatform, replatforming program, I hate to say that this was six years ago, and now they're replatforming the replatform. Again, oh my God. Are you it serious? Is, it is just what happens. Is that so, the third time they replatformed? The platform? Easily. Oh Probably my more. God. 
So how about they just give up the platform? That, there's a mind blowing <laughs> idea. <laughs> on the, so here's a thought on the flip side, though, right? So that's a that's a good success story that I guess ultimately Oscar was not a success because they replatformed again. But um, <laughs> so not to put too much information out there, but so like working in an organization that does metered funding, right? And they do metered funding at certain intervals because the the guise is well, we don't want to we want to make sure we're working on the right stuff. Uh-huh. But after a couple of years, they've never said no to a request yep. for metered funding. So, and I, I see that as as a, a failure to learn um, from the what you're pra- what you're preaching, right? Yeah. Around sunk cost fallacies and go after value, and you know you might get there eventually. But how how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are you willing to throw at something when you know you go through? three or four cycles of funding and you're not getting what you're looking for. So it's just, it's, it's interesting that, that some organizations take that approach, right? They, 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 we talk about metered funding and we talk about sunk cost fallacy and we talk about these things, but then in practice, nobody wants to be the one who, who has to stand on stage and say why I decided to pull the plug. Oh yeah. uh, No one wants to take credit for that. Uh -uh. So this is what I, I have definitely noticed as a trend. It is a fundamental problem in product culture of not being able to say no to stakeholders. Diplomacy wins every time. They're going to say, maybe they're not going to say no. We're going to vet it out first, but we're, we're not going to have a conversation right now. Or like, what's the point? Of, okay. If I'm, if I'm a product owner, why would I justify build, measure, learn if my funding is forever going to be approved? Honestly, like the nothing is going to motivate me to build something in iterations to lower risk, to make sure it has demand if it's always going to get approved. That's another sense of waste, waste of funding when you don't say no to funding. So this is a story that I'm happy to share with you. I'm with the team right now and um, we're in the early stages of of our first experiment. And I told you this earlier today, MC, we have our first experiment validated. Like we did so we did a heavy design sprint and we had some good ideas and we had some really, really bad ideas for the first experiment. And we are not going to build the bad ideas. Thank God. So thank God for the design sprint. What I will say though, this team, it's pretty high stakes. If the first experiment does not follow through, if it does not go, if we realize it's not actually viable, we're not going to push for funding. More, more, we're not going to push for more funding on a product that already failed to begin with in its first experiment. We're going to pivot and go back to the vision and the drawing board. But we're not going to continue building a thing that we've validated that isn't viable. And, but we would have to fight that, which is ironic. We are fighting the organization to take their money back. <laughs> well, because somebody, somebody up above you said something to somebody up above them and it made its way all the way up that says, we're doing this such amazing thing. Amazing thing. change the world. And yeah. it's, it might be wrong. Like, who, yeah. like, and it's, it's, it just, it makes me laugh because this whole agile sphere is about learning, fail fast, put that in air quotes, because we can't, uh-huh. fail. we can't, um, fail. and then we don't want to make the wrong decision. And just, it makes me laugh because what I it feel like a vast majority of the leaders, when push comes to shove, they revert back to what they know and they, and they don't persevere or they don't pivot when, when mm-hmm. so when the going gets tough type of situation i think fail fast is again turning into not a buzzword but a hashtag man if you if you look up the hashtag fail fast in linkedin my god like it is trending hard for years so i think it's starting to become tr- like translated to let's fail recklessly guys like let's fail recklessly and not fail from informed decisions definition of not ready people so this brings me back to another topic so we talked about product for a little bit i want to bring us to teams in scrum 
They inherently and repetitively talk about the importance of definition of ready to limit and lower behaviors that we want to avoid in Scrum. So all these all these outlier situations. But what I want to ask all of you is what happens when agile teams get stood up before they're ready? It's a whole group of people put together to create a thing and they have no idea what they're creating. I am going to volunteer Oscar as tribute to be the first person <laughs> to respond to this because I yes. know for a fact Oscar has stood up many teams and a lot of those teams probably should never have been stood up. Oh, so Oscar, man. Oscar, put you on the hot seat here. <laughs> what happened? It feels like there's a bus coming. No. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, it, I will say that I, a lot of it did happen and I saw a lot of it happen. In fact, I had... <laughs> I had an agile team that gets got stood up when, and I was a consultant at the time, so I was privy yeah. to like lots of information, and I knew that that project was on the process had been initiated to cut funding to that project, but no one else oh. knew. So we had to stand up the agile team because we've got the money. What? Wait, wait, the, the money's gonna run out. But no one else knew that. Oh my god! Right, it's one of those. <laughs> it's one of those. Left hand needs to do what they've been told, even though right hand is getting ready to smack them. Wow. And, as an outside consultant, I'm like, do you understand what this is going to do to this team's motivation, even if you have yeah. future plans for the people you're you're staffing on this team? Uh, don't worry about it. We'll give them some busy work. Wow. Even better. Yeah. It, <laughs> talk about uh, you know, a process of building code monkeys. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> like, oh, you're doing great stuff. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> and, oh, man. And, oh, man. And th this was, uh, I don't know when this was, Oscar, but uh, I'm assuming it wasn't recently. But man, you do that in like today's culture? where you've got people that are openly saying, if you force me to come back to the office, I will quit. Like, mm -hmm. try that in today's culture, and they're going to be like, peace, I'm out. Like, good luck. Yeah. I didn't document any of my code. Nothing's in swagger. Figure it out yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's savage. <laughs> but I, I think, um, you know, I think I've worked in a few teams where we've run into this problem, where we stood it up. I think it was because it was a mix of people were in roles that they, they didn't want to be in. Right. Which yeah. is like just the super common, right? You have product owner who, you know, quote unquote, comes from the business or was a, a user or was like a SME. And they're like, I don't even understand. I, I did a two day training and now I'm the product <laughs> owner and they don't even want to be there. And if the team's not ready, at least at least from a vision perspective. Right. And they're not empowered like they we may not have all of the uh, all the team members, you know, brought in and we might know we need developers and we know we need X, Y, Z. But if you could put a few folks together and at least say, guys, this is what I'm chartering you to do. And I'm trusting you to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like if you can't at least give them that, then you can't knowingly stand them up. And, you know, at least in Oscar's case, make sure they have funding. Um, if you can't do those things, don't even do it. Like you're, oh man. And, and throw in the, and I know we're going to talk about agile transformations and, and org level readiness in a little bit. But if you're in the midst of that and you yeah. slap a team together, right? Oh. Good luck. I mean, that stuff spreads like wildfire. Like, man, did you hear what this dumbass executive over here did? And then oh, you know, next next thing you know, everyone hates Agile as if they don't. Yep, Agile's a problem. Yep, I it's all Agile. Agile. I hate Agile. It, it's all Agile's <laughs> fault. Um, as you were telling that story, MC, um, I was actually inherently looking at like James' face because James is from the business side and he is an OG as a PO of his domain. Like he stood up to the plate as a PO for his business side. But um, I've also seen POs 
like come into what's considered a discovery uh, or a series of weeks called discovery. And the PO was never prepared to accept the role of PO. They were just told they were going to become the PO. Like they, that was their next step in their career. And at the beginning, I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity, right? But I would want to make a more informed decision to be ready to say yes or no to that opportunity. But again, that goes into readiness ties a lot into making informed decisions and our ability to know when we have just enough information. So again, that's preached all day, every day in Scrum, having just enough information to determine if you're ready to commit to the work at the beginning of your sprint before the sprint starts. So that brings me back to the next topic. What happens, like, this is like the most common scenario in any Agile team. Any new Agile teams that are being stood up, they are going to go through this, like no matter what. It's like an inevitable doom. But what happens when the team essentially accepts work into the sprint and it's not ready? Or even specifically, if I were to, um, to illustrate it better, a user story that says user story and I got accepted into this sprint. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Like there's there's a small percentage of a chance that you might actually be doing something useful, but a much larger percentage that you're going to have to redo it or you're just creating tech debt for yourself. And you and you take the pressure off the, the product owners of the world to get their shit done. Get it ready. Um, I mean, it's, it ready. It's, it's garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. I agree. I got to say, though, when I saw that in the sprint, I died. Like I was dying laughing. Like I had really had to contain myself because we claimed to have been ready at the beginning of the sprint. And then when the sprint started, that showed up at an... I I thought it was a prank. Uh, someone just put in a user story named user story into the spread. And there was nothing in it, like nothing at all. And just, yeah, I was dying like when, when I saw that. And it was very obvious in the daily standup because <laughs> I pretty much laughed my feelings on my sleeve. But essentially that that's why Scrum like talks about it so much. Now, what I did read up on, um, the reason definition of ready is not prescribed in a lot of the Scrum material, whether it's a Scrum guide, Nexus guide, or in less. Um, the reason they don't prescribe it is because very easily for teams that aren't mature agile teams, the definition of ready becomes a stopgate before you are welcome to add work into the sprint. And the team commits to the sprinkle, right? They commit to essentially what's planned out for the sprint and the sprinkle that was defined by the PO. But you think about that and when you have a stop, when you have a checklist that you have to meet called the definition of ready, how much harder does that make to bring in work? So that's why in in the article that I was reading by scrum.org, the reason they didn't prescribe it is because they'd much rather have the team have a conversation and backlog refinement. So backlog refinement, again, isn't a required event in Scrum, but is actively recommended to actively have as an activity, not as an event. But in Nexus, I will argue, and unless it is a required event, like it, it's a huge thing because you got to coordinate with multiple teams. How can it be recommended but not required? And everyone looking at it can say, if you don't do this, you're going to fuck up. Like, yeah, that's like, just stupid. Yeah, like it's it's not required, but they want you to have the conversation. So, but definition of done, like that is like prescribed to a T. So that's when I saw that, I'm like, why is that? Yeah, so. I was going to say, the definition of done's a checklist. To me, the biggest difference is the definition yeah. of done is holding the development team accountable or the creators accountable. The definition of ready is holding the business and the product owner accountable, who often ah. hold the purse strings and they don't want to be held yeah. accountable. 
We're bringing the money. Nope. And this this leads me all the way back to the Agile Manifesto, right? Somebody said yep. it recently. I don't remember who was talking about it, but they were like, man, I feel like they need to go back and update the manifesto because it was written from the perspective of we're trying to find better ways to write software. So having a definition of done should in some way, shape or form ensure that you whatever you've written, it might not be right, might not be the right value, but it will be better you know, testable, all that stuff. It'll be, it'll be, you have a better output. It still might not be right. And I, I just, I just, I call BS that we don't hold anyone but the code monkeys accountable for doing their work. And definition of ready, like with <clears throat> a lot of the stuff in the backlog, the contributions to the backlog is definitely open to the team. Essentially, it is a responsibility of the collective team. But yeah, like I totally agree. We need to like hit up JJ and Jeff Sutherland be like, yo, why aren't the POs held accountable definition of ready? But the team has like held accountable definition of done. Let's have this conversation right now. Let's refine it. But anyway, I probably wouldn't say it like that. But they're probably going to hear this. Who knows? So um, what, are, what are your thoughts, um, James, since you are a PO in this conversation? No, I really like the idea of, because I haven't thought about it from the perspective that Oscar brought up and, and MC also touched on it, whereas it, definition of done, you are holding the dev team accountable, but definition of ready would be the place or could be the place where you're holding the business side or the PO accountable. So I haven't thought about it like that because I look at the PO and the business being held accountable for the success of the product as a mm -hmm. whole. So whereas you can't just you can't blame the dev team if people aren't using the product that you told them to build and they build it just like you said that they, they should build it and the user said they wanted it. But I really like that idea of definition of ready holding the business side accountable. It's almost like the team agreement, but a little different. And it, it, it's bizarre because I think the developers know, they should know, well, they, they do. They know when when something is like the user story says user story, right? They know when that happens. Right? I know that and was a can, prank. They were totally they, messing with me, but whatever. <laughs> but like they can they can tell, right, when it's when it's a half-baked idea. But I, I think just organizationally, we've just we've got to get to this place where we can say, hey, you developer, like call bullshit on it. Don't mm -hmm. rely on your scrum master to do it, because that's what happens, right? They're relying on the agilist to call bullshit. Or they're relying on the agiles to say this isn't good enough in backlog refinement, yep. and um, I just I think they need to stand up a little bit more because James, to your point of the definition of done, you know, therefore the for the developers make sure they dotted all the i's, crossed all the t's. Can you imagine like the level of waste you're going to introduce to the team if you give them like a half baked dev story and they're like, yeah, we're going to go do the thing, and they're like, where's the data? Do we even have access to the data? Is there even an API that we can access? Do we have to write the API ourselves? Like there's so many questions uh, that the developers should have asked beforehand to determine whether or not they're ready. And yes, Tabby, it could happen in backlog refinement. It's it, it, the whole thing just makes me laugh. I mean, I can't, I honestly think the whole sprint is backlog refinement. Okay. It is chat windows. It is conversations. It is actively grooming and challenging what's in the product backlog. And I mean, this Chrome guy will verbatim say the PO is accountable for communicating the product backlog, right? So even though the PO is accountable, that responsibility is still on the team. We should all be playing a part in that. Something that I want to bring up is the concept of busy work is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous in a scrum team. It's dangerous in less. It's dangerous in Nexus because you stop working on work that is related to the sprint goal. 
So this is this is what I'm thinking. Like agile teams find busy work and a clogged product backlog when there isn't an understanding of the sprint goal or the product goal or the vision or the strategy. None of it makes sense. So they finished their stuff in an active sprint that they claimed to have committed to. They don't help the rest of the work that remains in the sprint because either someone already claimed it or they'll figure it out. I'm going to go look at the backlog and see what else there is for me to do. Yeah. And I, I probably the last thing we need to say on this topic is that I think it's really important to understand and have those consequences upfront predefined in your team agreements. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I've, the most successful things I've seen is an agreement where if the product owner is not ready yeah. and the backlog is not ready for sprint, then it's that the team has the ability to to slot in tech debt remediation and they get mm-hmm. control of the content of the sprint. Because one of the things I've, I've often seen is the pushback of, well, we need to be utilized. The team can't be sitting idle. Or what you said, Tabby, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll go find stuff in the backlog to try and fill the space. But if we agreed upon that in advance, you know, fine. We know we have tech debt. We always have tech debt that we can remediate. We can always do, you know, better testing framework or better unit testing. It's So it's our time. If product owner, you're not ready, it's our time as a development team to figure out how we're getting better so that we can deliver faster in the future, not faster, but better in the future. Right. And that's something that's actively um, spoken to in in Nexus. Like there is this thing called scrumbling and it's, it's a weird term because you basically stop. Like the entire Nexus stops what they're doing because they were not able to deliver the integrated increment in their last um, Nexus review. So they stop, like all the teams stop and we heavily inspect and adapt our current processes, our current frameworks to see what happens and really do a root cause analysis. And I know that's th- that's spoken to in Nexus, but that should be like an all around scrum thing. You know what I mean? Like if it, I mean, product owners are human. James, you're a human being. So I'm speaking for you right now. <laughs> Readiness is not an expectation at all times. So if the PO doesn't feel ready, let's say like the product backlog has gotten out of control. We as a team have not been doing our due diligence by declining waste, let's scrumble for a sprint. This sprint, developers, you you take in technical debt. We're going to scrumble. We're going to reevaluate our current process. We're going to reevaluate where we left off on our current experiment and what we're trying to learn from our current hypothesis. And the PO and the product backlog, they're going to take time to build up that readiness again. But those are my thoughts. I want to touch on, on one more thing you said, Tabby. I just want to add a little bit more detail. You talked about accountability and responsibility. So ultimately, the PO should be accountable and is accountable for the backlog being ready, being refined. But it is appropriate to delegate sometimes, depending on how technical the story is and whether the PO, how technical the PO is, or even if the PO is very technical, maybe has been a software engineer, has been a developer, maybe not, maybe has other experience. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to write all the details of those technical stories. You leave it up to the dev team. Accountable, but not always responsible. Exactly. And I I like using those terms intentionally because accountability and responsibility get used interchangeably all the time, the responsibility can most definitely be shared. The accountability does come to the PO, but delegation is so important because, okay, we expect already enough out of you POs. Like, let's make this a team effort. Um, But something that 
I want to bring up with definition of ready is that we talk about readiness from a sprint perspective. We talk about readiness from the initial launch of a product. But something that I think gets overlooked many, many times is the checks and balances that come out of definition of ready. It's an agreement, essentially. It's an agreement by the team. It's an agreement between the PO, the product and the team, right? But when you have those, like without having those checks and balances, the entire Agile team could potentially welcome active assumptions and active biases around ideas and features. And that's when we start to drift from build, measure, learn. And as an example, this is something that's welcomed in in Agile, but I, I try to tread lightly because we all have the capacity to come up with ideas, but sometimes some ideas are pretty bad. Okay. I like, I, I like to put that out there and not all the, de- not all ideas are good. So so-and-so developer brings this mind-blowing idea into backlog for me. Like, would it be possible if we did this? Okay, treading lightly, developer, what is your thought process behind that idea? Let's go through a few questions and seeing how that relates to our current and future sprint goals. Let's go ahead and think about how it relates to the vision and our current strategy and our current hypothesis. Where where did this idea come from? What why why do you why are you trying to pitch it to the team? And then that's where we kind of take us we take a moment to challenge the developer, but not obviously not shut them down because we are a team that promotes transparency, but to just kind of validate the thought process behind that idea because otherwise, if we say, "Yeah, let's just try it and see if it sticks." Let's just build the idea, see if it sticks. Cool. So we've had 10 days out of a sprint on average, 10 days where we've billed every developer and the Agilist and the PO for an entire sprint on an idea that wasn't vetted. And we're going to share that with the stakeholders because that's what we build their money on. Uh, who wants to have that conversation? (laughs) (laughs) So that's why vetting becomes very important only because you want to validate where the idea ties into. And I, I truly believe definition of ready ties into those checks and balances. Definition of ready obviously is illustrated in Scrum as a way to focus on behaviors we avoid when we're starting the sprint. But it also goes to product backlogs. It also goes to committing to the product goal and the product strategy. Readiness is an inherent responsibility of the team as much as done is. I'm just saying that JJ and Jeff Sutherland. Okay, cool. So the next topic that I want to bring up, I want us to spend some time on lean practices. So lean practices as in build, measure, learn, and the five lean principles that Eric Reese speaks to. I want to get everyone's thoughts on why why they believe we do we do work in iterations. We all we all have a reason for it. Something that I've learned over time is that the point of doing work in iterations comes from lean practices to lower risk, to identify what we learn and to confirm slash cancel future sprint goals. Because we just don't know. Like we're not gonna know if we're right about an idea in the moment that we come up with it. We're, we're gonna know once we validate it and build it, but we do it in iterations to lower that risk. But let me open that question to you all. What are your thoughts on the importance of doing work in iterations? If you do one agile thing, that should be the one. Small chunks in iterations. Like if you do nothing else, if you don't have a backlog, if you don't even do sprint planning, forget the retrospective because it's just a bunch of feelings and bullshit. Feelings? Um, <laughs> if you're going to do just one thing, and that was sarcasm, by the way, um, Dr. Evil air quotes, because um, um, the retro is my favorite. Um, but if you're going to do yeah. just one thing, 
that I, to me, that is the most important thing because if you don't, you're just going to fall back to like developing until you think it's done. And then you're going to end up with like a Microsoft product. Oh man, that's, those are fighting words. I hope Microsoft isn't going to be listening to this. But yes, the the risk just the risk gets higher the longer you wait. That is just fundamentally what it's explained in lean practices. The the higher you wait to validate your theory and your hypothesis, the risk goes up. So yes, do things and iterations to get enough validation to lower that risk as much as you can. What do you think, Oscar? Hallelujah. Um, I think, I mean, a lot of these these concepts we should have learned from, like, not even software or manufacturing. Let's go back to basic science. Small steps. Can you validate with a step that you took was the right step? If yes, you can't, the then... scientific method. Exactly. I mean, it's funny because all these all these things we talk about, lean, um, all of the methodologies that have sprung up over mm-hmm. the years, they're all based on the same things we all should have learned in kindergarten and that we all learned, have been working on for decades as a society. We just like to repackage it and throw different names on it. But Truth. yeah, to MC, MC's point, that's like one of the most fundamental things we learned as a society. Do something. If it works, great. If you got eaten by the T-Rex, don't do it again. Oh, very violent. Okay. I thought of Reptar in that moment. I actually had dreams as a kid that I was going to get eaten by Reptar. It was a bad idea. But that's anyway, <laughs> that's like, I, was a, I was a huge like, Rugrats fan. <laughs> it's like the last show you should have nightmares about. <laughs> I was a very feel, odd child. I feel but, sorry um, for your childhood. <laughs> Um, so I like that you bring up science experiments because like when I was a kid, I mean, it's still a problem now as an adult, as an adult, don't get me wrong. So I would get upset because food would expire so fast in the fridge. Like I really wanted to get some string cheese, but it went bad. So I did a science science experiment on how long it takes for, um, what, what is the key ingredient for food to start to start the decomposition process? So I tested with pasta sauce. And my theory was, if I wait this amount of time at room temperature, this pasta sauce will start going bad in this amount of time because it's at room temperature versus it's in the fridge. So I put pasta sauce in like this paper cup next to my nightstand for like a week. Oh, yeah, I validated that hypothesis. (laughs) And I was only six. (laughs) That's like the worst food experiment. That's like worse than (laughs) than that one video where they put the Big Mac in the little container. And And it's still good. (laughs) And a year later, there was no fungus on it. Like, oh, my God. Oh, man. But see, like, I was like, I knew it would go bad. I just wanted to see the at the rate of how it how soon it starts to decompose. And then I want to reference that to cheese. But cheese doesn't have sugar, but pasta sauce sugar so then i started an investigation investigation of sugar and expediting the process of food going bad but this, anyway this that was a great experience. way left, <laughs> way left here. <laughs> coming back um you guys got to got, get a taste of the mad scientist that was me as a kid but Just. um yes <laughs> put on words so yes like lean teaches us from the very beginning to do things in small iterations only to like be able to claim how much risk we're taking in and And someone told me recently in a previous conversation of, well, yeah, if you're if you're monitoring risk that hard, then it makes sense. I'm like, when are we not monitoring risk? Uh... Yeah, because the risk is broad. It's risk of putting the wrong product out, risk of wasting money, risk of employees leaving. There's there's so many levels of risk. Exactly. And we we definitely need to spend time unpacking that. And as a PO for, for other things, 
When am I not thinking about risk? Am I actually building the right thing? Is my hypothesis completely obtuse? Did I perform enough user research, user interviews to validate and build this hypothesis? Do I even have enough research to back this up? So risk never stops. Risk is this, it's not even a process. It's this continuation of acknowledgement of something that exists when it comes to building products and building something that is uncertain, even startups. Something that Eric Rice speaks to about start. I love his definition by the way, if you guys don't already know his definition of a startup. So he describes a startup as a human institution designed to create something under conditions of extreme uncertainty. That's a startup. And I read that and I immediately think of, okay, well, that's most scrum teams. That's most agile teams. They are building products or adding to products based on extreme uncertainty. What do you all think? Definitely agree, which is which is why I go back to trying my best to talk about the vision, talk about the, the product goal, talk about the product strategy every sprint to so the dev team can keep mm-hmm. me honest, so everyone can constantly hear what we're trying to achieve based on what they're seeing. And you can refine your vision. You, you can change your vision. It doesn't have to remain unchanged. Things happen. Things change. Man, you, you are that humbling PO that every team wants, James. My God, that's what I'm going to share with you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much of me rubbed off on James when we worked together together on the same team. But oh, I'll okay. Take You're going to claim will, credit for that? Okay, I will cool. absolutely take credit for it. <laughs> James learned it from MC. Okay, then. No, so awesome. Humble. So humble. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned many things from MC, good and bad. Yeah, but see, I introduced James to many tabby habits. So yeah, like he's learned the word merp. So, but anyway. I I get credit for that. Moving on to the next topic. So we talked about readiness with teams and with product. I also want to touch on readiness when it comes to agile transformation. So, or or something that me and Matt would like to call fragile transformations. (laughs) But what happens when agile transformations happen and the org literally isn't ready? to flip that switch and they think they are. I wish I'd seen an or- I've seen an organization that is ready. All of them have, have been right? doing them, but none of them have been ready. Exactly. Because time is money. Like we, we got to flip the switch now. Like we're, we're ready enough. Ready enough? Every- How, we'll see, we'll unpack that. Everybody else is doing will, it. Come on. I will, I will argue that you're never ready until you do it. Like mm. what, what, what really, what can you do to prepare yourself for transformation? So you have to know why you're transforming. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. So many organizations will transform not for the reasons that the frameworks are designed for. They will transform because they read about the revenue that comes out of outputs from agile transformations. Oh, like, like doing twice the work and half the time. Totes. <laughs> Something that like, I think we inherently just, we, we acknowledge, but we kind of forget is that organizations are still businesses. They're still businesses. They got to keep the lights on. They got to keep the lights on for their customers and for their employees. So they read about these agile transformations and the ability to deliver so fast that they want to flip the switch immediately so we can get on board and deliver even more output faster. But there comes some homework and preparation when it comes to transformations around Scrum. Now, I'm not going to speak to safe because, yeah, that is a different shitstorm. Okay, I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to avoid that can of worms right now. What I will say, like with Le- Less and Nexus, they heavily preach about all the preparation that you need to do before you flip that switch. And some of the things that I'll touch on. So first thing, have an understanding between feature teams and component teams. And in my experience, most organizations have a shit ton of component teams. 
like a, a team for data architecture, a team just for data, a team just for data administration, a team for integrations. So components of an infrastructure, but not actual features for an existing product. What have you all experienced? Well, it's, a, it's specialization run, run amok, right? We think people yes, are going to be more you. effective and efficient if we put them all together and they can talk to each other and they have a manager that may, be, may or may not understand them. Uh-huh. But it, it, again, it, I think it all goes back to the vision. What is it we're trying to do here? Are we trying to optimize DBAs or are we trying to deliver product to customer? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've run into this so many times. I, I've got a great example right now where we're focused on, on billing and payments, which uh-huh. is it's an extremely important function, but how does this work for the customer? Like, yeah. it's not it's part of any value stream. It's not part of any product delivery. It's just in this abstract. Yeah, hey, let's do something cool. And kind of going back to something we said earlier, the developers just found stuff that they thought were interesting. Well, let's pay in Bitcoin. Our company doesn't. You know, the company doesn't accept Bitcoin. <laughs> My God, but it's cool. <laughs> I wish we could pay with you know a credit card. That would be nice. Um, <laughs> Or, or so here's a so you know I don't know if I'm being humble or what but whatever um, I mention all the time that I, I have a business in the CBD industry they'll market to me to use some of their services like a payment company will but that payment company won't take CBD business so it's mm. like just like the developer saying hey we can add the feature to pay with Bitcoin but we don't accept Bitcoin so it's like hey MC. We would love your business, but we don't take CBD business. Huh? Like what what developer built this feature? Like get out of my face. Exactly. That's when busy work comes into play. Oh yeah. Like that sounds like a great idea. Let's just build it guy. Let's see if it sticks. My God. Yes. (laughs) So yeah. Like when, when the actual inherent structure, let's say of your program, like just your part of the entire org is more focused on putting all the UX designers on a team and then putting all the data architects on a team and then putting all the solution architects on the team. When it comes to those teams speaking to their own product vision, what do you think they're going to speak to? What is their product? Uh, my product is the team. <laughs> I, yeah, that's when they say, I have, an, I have an SLA and I'll get back to you in 48 hours. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. But the way um, the examples that they give in less in a Nexus is they kind of speak to, it's kind of like a science fair. So if, if the Amazon website had a science fair for all their, their all their features, uh, a specific less model could be just focused on the carton checkout for Amazon. That is the feature that, and we're going to, we're going to recruit teams just for that feature, the cart and checkout. So there's going to be a group of individuals. One team is going to focus on the web version. Another team is going to focus on the app version. Another team is going to focus on devices and hardware, but it's all what the cart and checkout. So you know what that requires. They have to talk to each other. Like they all have to collaborate on implementing this integrated increment. That's why they keep calling it the integrated increment and not the product increment. It is an integrated increment of one feature with hint, hint, one product owner, one product owner for two to nine teams. I want to see this in practice. I know. While, while theoretically it sounds great, it sounds simple. I don't know if people can handle that. It is. It, it's very extreme. And you have to like, again, you have to be ready for that kind of environment. You have to have cross-functional developers. You can't just have a specialized developer on .NET and we're building an app for Apple products. Like that's not how this works. Like you got to be cross-functional. So, and, and that's where 
that's where I challenge the notion of cross-functional teams or a structure like that, because that's not how developers, and Oscar, I know you were a developer at one point, correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. here. For most developers, that's not how they view themselves. Like full stack devs are unicorns. A good Yeah, that's what they look for. Devs. Yeah. But 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 that's what's crazy. There's not that many of them out there. Folks find their specialty and they ride their niche. Like Oscar, correct me if I'm wrong here. No, I mean you're right. The vast majority of engineers out there are like that. They're one of the one person I worked with, uh, she used to say, There are only so many unicorns, so hire some horses and glue a horn to them. And it was <laughs> Or upskill oh, them to amazing. unicorns. And it was being yeah, realistic. Yeah, I totally it's get like, it. <laughs> not everybody can do everything well. Let's get just make them good enough at the other things. So they don't not everybody needs to yeah. know Swift and or Objective C. We have one or two guys and you know, if you can read Java, you can read Objective C. So yeah. I want to make an image now, Oscar, just from that description. Oh my God! Okay, we're gonna pl- every- we're gonna glue a horn. No, 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 no. Every organization okay. has two or three unicorns. Uh-huh. They also have a handful of horses with fake unicorn horns. We yep. have a couple zebras and a couple jackasses, and thus is my product organization. What about the donkeys? <laughs> That's the ass. But it's not. <laughs> I always respond with that. <laughs> but that but, I mean, th- that's your workers right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah, the the point I'm trying to make, MC, is like they're not going to be recruited. Then they're just not for that for that less structure for that less model, and that's completely fine, right? You got to be intentional about what you're trying to transform within your program for what features. It takes a lot of work to restructure the whole program. There's no program managers unless or in Nexus. There's no program man. There's no agile coaches unless or Nexus. There's scrum masters. There's developers. There's one PO unless. Now, and Nexus is a little different because they got the NIT team, which is the Nexus integration team. But I'm not going to get into that right now. Essentially, you have to restructure your leadership. You have to restructure the existing teams and you have to restructure the actual people that are going to get it recruited into that less model. So knowing these things when you don't do that work beforehand, you are not ready. Like don't flip that switch. You're going to make, you're going to do more harm to the existing teams than good in, in my honest opinion. So that's when I talk about transformation readiness with a model, with a specific model, which in my, in my argument, most scaling frameworks are very prescriptive of what they expect as far as readiness, but don't just half asset because you're not going to set yourself up for success you are going to fail in transforming. Yeah, and I, I I would agree with that so so wholeheartedly given every transformation I've been at the center of. It's to steal a phrase from MC, if you can only be ready with one thing in a transformation, be ready to make decisions. Because you're going to have to restructure your organization. You're going to have to decide who you're going to hire and be pragmatic about who you can mm. cannot afford, about what methodologies you can and can't follow. If you're not ready to make those hard decisions, don't start. Don't start. Like, don't bother. Make those, do the homework before you actually transform. That is my solid argument there. But before you, before you say something, MC, I think James wanted to say something. Just wanted to make sure I understood you. One PO, nine products? No, no. So one PO for a model that has potentially two to nine teams. You weren't hoping to sleep at all, were you? Okay. <laughs> okay, two to nine teams, not two to nine products. I was about yes. to say I have to see that. So to two believe. to nine teams, but these are te- these are feature teams. So remember, like these are not product teams. So the scaling actually is descaled, and the teams have to collaborate with each other to build the less 
product backlog, as well as the Nexus product backlog. So it's not completely on you, but you are providing priority as the PO for two to nine teams. That's why they don't recommend more than nine teams. Even nine teams is a lot. Like less harps on your ability to descale as much as possible. So you can just focus on features and not just the monolithic product to help your product owner be more successful. But that's not always the case based on the enterprise that's transforming. The intent is to not have one PO for one, like not even just one product, because in, in the argument that less makes, even that's too much for a PO for one product. But um, if you think about that scale, you're focusing on features. You're focusing on the su- success of the feature that you're trying to integrate with all the teams. Again, that that requires a lot of readiness. And the, the one thing that I didn't get a chance to bring up is infrastructure. Oh my God. If you're still doing Scrummerfall, which is what I like to call a safe, and I'm going to say that out loud. Like that's that's how I determine safe. So if you're still doing Scrummerfall and everyone's deploying on the same day and three months, dude, you are Fuck not fine. ready. Yeah, you are not ready for lesser Nexus. Figure out your infrastructure. <laughs> I think the biggest important part there is some semblance of CICD. And, and mm-hmm. I think even more important than that, is some freaking automation testing. Yep. Like, particularly if you've got a user interface, like have some automated testing on your user interface and make it real. Mm-hmm. Um, no, none of this, you know, Oscar, I think you're going to cringe when I say this. We haven't had this conversation. I worked at an organization I was consulting for a couple of years ago. And uh, when my team came in to help, you know, be a, a shot in the arm to help them get over the hump, we jumped into the automation testing to add our tests and we saw some things like if one equals one test equals pass and like our jaws hit the floor coverage complete. They were, they were in yep, hundred percent code coverage, all the tests passed or they were doing some ridiculous stuff around. Oh, well the, you know, 30% of the tests failed. Let's just rerun them. And some of them will pass again. And I'm like, what, what kind of an infrastructure? Like this isn't even a real test if you just rerun it and it passed. So I, mm-hmm. uh, to me, if you're going to if you're going to go for for transformation and you're going to try to move fast, you have to have some infrastructure around your testing because yes. that's going to be the number one thing that bites you in the ass cuz you're going to move so fast from one iteration to the next and then the bugs start coming in. And that's when everybody throws their hands up. What do I do? I got bugs. We didn't commit to bugs this sprint. What happens yeah. now? Um so th- I think that's one of the most important parts. I know what happens now. You got your resume ready. I mean, realistic like in the in the barnyard you were creating, those are the sheep, right? They've They've met the definition. The story said 100% code coverage with test passing. They gave it to you. Oh my God. I met the definition of done. What's your problem? You didn't, it was a product owner's problem for not specifying it right. Oh my God. For not specifying quality. (laughs) Specificity. Anyway. um, Yeah, I I completely agree. And like even beyond automation, just, just think about a situation where your ability to rapidly release, it's going to take you three weeks. That's how long it takes you right now to release to prod. So just because you transform to less or a nexus doesn't mean that goes away. Like you're you're just going to be in a model that's going to hold up even more people now because you haven't deployed your work. In an ideal world with less, teams should be deploying whenever they want. And they're just deploying to get it out there to te- like with that's already tested because it's been tested through automation. They should be deploying whenever they can, as soon as they can. And if that's not currently 
in preparation to work towards as an organization, why are you trying to transform? You are not ready. You, you are not ready. Determine readiness. That's something that I want to touch on with agile transformations is all, like, quite honestly, all I hear about is painful, fragile transformations. I, I am waiting for the day that someone tells me a glorious success story of a transformation, but who knows? Give it time. I don't even think if, to be frank, I don't even think if they're ready that it's not going to be painful because you're dealing with people more more yeah. than anything. And difficult conversations. What's the, uh, what is it? The Virginia satire curve, right? At some point, right? You get the dotted line that shoots off to the side and that's where every Everyone starts quitting because it's too hard and painful. So, you know, I'm not worried about it being painful, but I think I'm more so worried that we're, we have the leadership in place to weather the storm and Mm -hmm. that they like James, I I love James, how you said it, um, that you go through the vision constantly and you're constantly Constantly. reminding people why we're doing this because I've been through several transformations where the leaders show up on day like almost like a safe PI planning event right leadership shows up Mm. hey everybody this is the great thing we're gonna do and then they're gone and then and they're never back and they're not there to see you know all the the bumps and bruises and the stumbles along the way you're never going to be ready and it's always going to be painful but if you're there and you're willing to persevere and then reiterate that vision you might be okay You say that we're never going to see them. We're, we're going to see them when we go live three months from now, when shit hits the fan. But that's just me being negative. Go ahead. Go ahead, Oscar. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it will always be painful. But if people are willing and understand why that pain is occurring and they're willing to take that journey, those are the people you want. And you have to be going back to the definition of ready. Like if you're not ready to make the decisions of we need a lot of automation, that's the, <laughs> those are the people we need to hire. We've got a lot of code monkeys that don't care they gotta go they gotta go and you know you, you're impacting people's lives it's hard conversations they're hard decisions to make but if your company really needs to make that shift to stay alive yeah stay in business that's when you're ready i'm ready to make those hard decisions but a lot of i mean i've worked with companies where they they're they feel like they're too big to fail especially the large enterprise we don't need to get rid of those people it's too hard I've been in organizations where we just take those people and instead of having the hard conversations, we just kind of keep them over to the side. So when the inevitable layoff or downsizing comes, we got a pool. <laughs> That's diabolical, but I guess if it's effective. <laughs> or I heard something last week that just literally petrified me. Uh, the first transformation that I went through, there's probably about six or seven people still there that were a part of it and we're all messaging and catching up. And I said, so, so what's the status of this, right? All the product owners for the longest weren't very good. So what, mm. you know, have, have the product owners gotten better? Oh, we don't have product owners anymore. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> what are you, what are you doing now? Oh, our, our scrum masters are now project managers and they do everything the product owners did plus the scrum oh masters. God. And I was like, so who's helping them? Oh, well, they they just meet directly with the business. And I was like, so you guys reversed your transformation? And keep in mind, you know, this was seven years ago when we started this transformation. So I'm like, in seven years, you've completely gone back to what it was. Like, well, we still have teams and we, we still kind of work in two-week iterations. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, that, that is cringeworthy. And like both of you touch on um, something that's actively written in big red letters the way they teach it to you at less. So unless they teach you there is no role security in less, especially in your org. When you're transforming to a less model, there is no role security, but there is job security. That's what they that's that's their argument. Because you gotta you gotta move the program managers and the project managers and you gotta introduce 
If you want to keep them in the less model, you have to set expectations. You can either join the less model, become a scrum master, adopt the agile mindset, or you can take this other position where you become a mentor and you leave this particular program into a different part of the org. So I guess good leadership is trying to give you options, but that's not always the case. Uh, leadership will just transform and shove you into a role that you didn't have consent on. But that's the dark side of transformation. But unless they, they talk actively about for leaders specifically to give your people options so that they can make the decision to be in the less structure or not. Because that's really that really is success when you decide to be a part of something that is going to have pain points in its own transformation. But that's what, that's what I think about when it comes to readiness and agile transformations. I know we're, we're about to wrap for time. I got one more question for you all, and then we're going to wrap. So we're going to talk about market readiness and all these interesting products that have been released in our in the past decade, and they just did not stick because they were not ready for the markets at all. And MCU immediately started laughing, so you go right ahead. <laughs> I, I have a product that I thought was a cool idea, but... It literally fell flat on its face, and it was Google Glass. I don't, I don't know how many years ago that was. I mean, seven to ten years ago, right? They were doing, they were looking at this, and I'm like, man, this is super cool. But I don't think the market was ready for it. Um, whether it, you know, whether it was the interface, how do you control it, whatever it may be. But I just, mm-hmm. I, I feel like they didn't do their user research right? They didn't focus on usability and thus adoption was low. Very similarly to like 3D TVs, right? 3D TVs were all the rage like five years ago. Everyone wanted a 3 or everyone was selling a 3D TV, but nobody Mm. wanted it (laughs) Um, because they just, they didn't, they didn't do their research, right? They didn't figure out is the market ready for something like this? Are they ready to change? And and I think you can see there's so many products in the world that were these small iterative changes that they're viewed as, as being super innovative, right? I know people Mm -hmm. put Apple on the pedestal for innovation and the iPod was one of the biggest innovations they did. But if you really like step back and look at it, was it that innovative? Like you went from, you know, a cassette deck in your car. I don't know if you had those Oscar just dating you here. Um, you had the cassette wow. deck in the car. You had the boom That was a low box, blow, man. Like, <laughs> but you had all, the, you know, you had the, the Walkman that played the cassette. Then you had the Walkman that played the CD. And then you had an iPod. Like it was a natural iterative product evolution. So it wasn't that innovative, but they the people were ready for it. They were like, hey, do you want to run with your music and your CD doesn't skip every five seconds? Here you go. Oscar, you were about to say something. Well, those are really two, I think, really interesting examples. Because if we look at like the iPod and what eventually became the iPhone, that was an evolution of the Newton. And the mm-hmm. Newton failed because it, the market wasn't there. The technology wasn't there. People, there. It wasn't a part of a nice evolution like you just described. Right? It was this disruptive, what do we do with this thing? Exactly. And eventually, you know, Palm Pilot became really successful. And then the iPhone. Yeah, I'm dating myself here. Um, but also, Google was... <laughs> I don't even know what a Newton is. Are we talking about one of Newton's laws or No, not that outdated, buddy. That that's that's mean. That's just real mean. Oh man. Oscar knows I love him. Uh, but I think the Google Glass one was also an interesting one that you bring up because I think the market might have been ready, but because they didn't understand their customers, they didn't understand the no, market. No, they didn't understand the need. Uh-uh. Because they're they marketed it as Everyone needs one of these things. They're awesome. You, if you don't have one, you're not a good person, more or less. Yeah. And the people that adopted them were these rich early adopters, technologists mm-hmm. with too much money. 
I mean, it, it even coined the term glass hole because you had <laughs> you had these people walking yes, around with, with glass on it acting superior. And so like they couldn't even pivot with the technology because it got such a bad reputation for the people that it did appeal to. And they over-engineered the shit out of it. They, they just, it did so much shit, okay? Like, it was very hard to keep up on what they were trying to deliver. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, because, you know, Apple's going to, I think, is in the process of trying to figure out how to release one. And they are being very cautious because of what happened to Google. Um, they understand people's privacy issues and like, uh, so how do we do that and have cameras in our glasses without causing privacy issues? They're trying to understand the market before they release their product. Exactly. And I mean, they're trying to become ready to respond to a market demand. Readiness, people. Like, let's not just pull a Google and just put it out there and see if it sticks. Okay, it, it didn't It didn't work. I mean, when you got Google money, you, you can afford to do that, I guess. Yeah, but look at the user retention, the glass holes. <laughs> As Oscar puts it, so well, we all everybody knows Google's business model isn't selling products; it's getting your data. So they're they're okay <laughs> over there. I'm pretty sure Google searches are pretty high up there still. <laughs> oh man, but no, I I love that example because it was so short lived. Uh, maybe I mean the market response could be potentially different now. I can't I can't speak for the market back then because I only saw it released for a brief moment, and a, a handful of my crew like bought it and. To this day, they still don't use it. Like it was like a fun niche thing to buy at the time. But my argument is VR. Okay. And I was talking to MC about this earlier today. Like VR has has been around for the longest time. And it, it it's kind of transcend into like this clunky wired avatar looking person. Like if you got a green screen behind you, you look like you're on the set of Avatar. You got so many wires hooked up to you trying to do VR. But now with the release of Oculus with Facebook, now Facebook obviously has their own motives behind creating the Oculus. They are very data heavy and they are data mongrels, but they responded to a market demand, VR. For us gamers that are out there, we are over looking at a TV screen or looking at our monitor to game. We want to be in the game. Like we want we want virtual reality. And pretty soon, I was telling MC this, like our future is meeting people in VR, meeting people that don't even like live in local areas in VR, meeting someone at like overseas in VR. And that's where it gets real creepy. But honestly, I'm just being a realist. Like, I think that's our future. <laughs> I feel like the old guy who's screaming at you to get off my lawn right now. Like, no, <laughs> hard pass. <laughs> oh man. But anyway, that's, that's us geeking out. What are your thoughts, James? I feel like you're the voice of reason out of all, out of all of us, to be honest. <laughs> well, there's not there's not one product that that comes to mind that went to market and it wasn't ready there's one that's been hyped that was expected to be at the market more now and that's self-driving cars autonomous yeah. vehicles and i feel like we're still a ways away before that happens could be years could be decades you know we, we need to improve infrastructure still we need to improve ai still so it's it's not where people thought mm -hmm. it would be and people still some people cringe at the idea of self-driving cars even though we still have 30,000 plus deaths every year that humans cause just in the US from car crashes i trust self-driving cars more than humans <laughs> once once we get there but we're we're just not there yet call me crazy 
crazy. But I'm just scared of Skynet. Like, <laughs> I'm just scared of Skynet happening. Like, I I think we're becoming, a, and this is way off base, but I think we're becoming, like, way overly reliant on technology. And I have so many things at my desk right now that I can yep. ask to play music for me, and I'm not going to say those magic words. I just think we're overly <laughs> reliant on technology. I am so <laughs> tempted right now. I know. If you weren't wearing headphones... <laughs> I would be trying to activate your devices. Yeah. Oh, man. That would be hysterical. And I mean, yes, Big Brother is fucking watching. I'm sorry. Like, I am so deeply wired right now. They they know that I'm recording an episode for Agile Disrupted right now. Okay, let's just be real here. So something that I think about with, with self-driving cars, I kind of gather the context clues that none of you have watched Upload by Amazon Prime. Is that the one where the guy dies and his girlfriend uploads him to a virtual reality world and then she can interact with him that is the weirdest most entertaining show i've watched in a long time oh my god i love that was like the first thing i watched in the in the beginning of the pandemic but go ahead but one of the (laughs) one of the things that that and self-driving cars have in common are data privacy what's gonna stop a insurance company from lobbying to get the the all the data about the self-driving car and what did you the human being do in the car and how's that going to impact your insurance rates um there's interestingly enough right on this data privacy a uh, common software used for uh, house inspections made a change recently where um, all your data is going to be available to homeowners insurance companies they can use that against you down the road and I, those are things that I fear where we're, our over-reliance on technology is going to harm us. And I, and I think for some people, myself included, that is why I'm not ready for an autonomously driving vehicle. Because I don't, think the, I don't think the tech's good enough, but I'm more concerned about the data privacy side of it. Would it be cool? Yeah. But I just, I don't think myself and millions of other people are ready for it because of that those types of reasons. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about upload. I'm going to be uploaded into some afterlife version after I get, I'm not going to say anything else. I'm ruining it for people who have not watched upload, but yes, that, that, I'm trying not to relive that horror story. <laughs> there's, there's no such thing as spoiler alerts in the pandemic. You have plenty of time to binge watch a show. <laughs> but I think, okay, I think of political figures like our president in an autonomous vehicle that's linked to an API address? Nah, bro. Nah. Like, I I can't trust that. Like, anarchy will ensue when we access that data and our president is dead. Awesome. That's, I immediately think of that. Just, I think of world-maintained peace. Like, when the rest of the world starts, um, like, their political figures be transported in autonomous cars that are linked to data systems that anyone can hack. Nope. Um, But anyway, I sadly do have to wrap up today's episode. But before I do that, I want to give a moment to show gratitude to both Oscar and James. So thank you, Oscar, for joining us in today's episode. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And James. Yeah, thank you. And all you listeners out there, thanks for joining us in this roller coaster of an episode called Definition of Not Ready. Stay tuned for the next episode coming up at Disruptive.